Hey, this is Jared Wellman. I'm the lead pastor at Tate Springs, and this is our podcast. God is telling a story of hope and redemption. Hope and redemption. Redemption that can only be found through Jesus Christ. I hope that this is a blessing and inspires you to discover your part in God's story. Good morning. Welcome to Tate Springs Baptist Church. Go ahead and grab your copy of God's Word with me this morning as we continue the sermon series that we have been in called When in Rome. And just to kind of connect the dots, uh, for those of us who uh, might be coming into this, tuning in, might be coming into the series, or really all of us who maybe have been walking through this together, uh, Rome is really just a way of us uh, kind of signifying uh, the modern day iteration of Rome uh, that, we, that we live in. And so if you go back to the very beginning of the series, the thing that we did together is we, we looked at Rome, ancient Rome, and we kind of went through the gamut of all the things uh, that people who lived in that city during that time uh, experienced, and we, we fast-forwarded all the way to the things that we are currently experiencing uh, here in the United States of America, and really there, there isn't that much of a difference. And so the, the thing is, the more things change, the more they stay the same. And so we are still dealing with the same uh, issues and the same problems and the same kind of things that they were dealing with then. And so Paul's letter to the church that was in Rome is still very relevant for you and for me as we uh, navigate our way through this modern iteration of Rome. And so we're going to talk today uh, in Romans 6. We are going to look at the idea of what it means to live in freedom. What does it mean to live in freedom? And so one of the, the blessings and the benefits of walking through a book together is that we get to see the argument that, that Paul is, is layering. And, uh, and so today we're gonna talk about the idea of what it means since Paul has been pounding the idea of grace into our brains, he's going to tell us uh, one of the benefits of that, which is that we get to live in freedom. Now, uh, this is a really important lesson, a really important uh, message about the idea of freedom because a lot of times, when we misunderstand grace, even if, and this is where Paul's going, even if we don't understand we're missing the idea of grace, it can have consequences in the kind of life that the Lord really wants us to live. So I wanna just begin by looking at verses one and two together. So if you found that in Romans six, just put your eyes there with me. Let's go ahead and read the first two verses. <clears throat> Paul says, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin so that grace may increase. Now, let me pause real quick before we read the second verse. When he says, what shall we say then? Obviously, he's referencing everything that he's been saying before that. So all of the ideas that we've been talking about when it comes to grace, what shall we say about grace then? Now, Paul is a brilliant uh, debater. And so he is uh, either listening to what people have been saying about grace when he's giving this radical idea that grace is something that you don't earn, but it's something that's given as a gift. And he's either actually heard Pharisaic-minded people push back on that idea and say, well, if grace is just a gift, then what's to keep me from just sinning and abusing it? Or he is just uh, assuming this is how people are going to respond. Either way, he's giving us this idea. And then he says in verse two, may it never be. My Greek professor says that when, when Paul says something like this, that it's as close to cursing as you can get in the Greek. May it never be. <clears throat> How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? How should we who, who are dead to sin continue to live in it? Now, <clears throat> we've, been, um, we've been looking at grace, and, uh, and the idea of it is, is that it's something that's in God's hands, not in your hands. 
So you cannot go into some kind of shop and manufacture grace. You cannot do a lot of good works and earn grace. It's not something you can create. It's not something you can manufacture. It's not something you earn. And it's certainly not something we deserve. But yet, we can have it. It's a, it's a supernatural miracle that we can have grace. And so it's something that's in God's hands, not in your hands, not in your pastor's hands, not in a deacon's hand, not in your Sunday school teacher's hand. And so there are some individuals here who are having a hard time with that here in Paul's day, and I imagine even today. And I've talked with Christians who sometimes still struggle with this concept because we like to hold on to things, and that's the tension in this text. We like to hold on to things, especially when it comes to life, especially when it comes to eternal life. We, wanna, we feel like if we can have some kind of say in it, then what it means is we can know, but our confidence is not in what we can do for the Lord, but in what the Lord has done for us in Christ. That's the point. That's the point that Paul is making. And so the tension of this statement arises from a fundamental misunderstanding of grace because it reveals a heart in this question that's still grappling with the true nature of grace. When someone says, well, what shall we say? Can, what, if grace is, is legitimate, Paul, then we can just sin and sin and sin, and that means God's gonna show more grace and more grace and more grace, and, and so grace can't be true because it just gives us a license to sin, and, and what Paul's really saying here is that grace is not a loophole for us to just sin as much as we want, but it is a transformative power that gives us the ability to live a life of freedom. And so when we misunderstand grace, we misunderstand its purpose and we misunderstand its power. And it's not dissimilar to the lawyer who asked the question, and who is my neighbor? You remember that story in Luke chapter 10? Jesus is, is talking, He's, he takes all of the law, he takes all of God's promises, all of the things that we were told that we ought to do to live a life that's pleasing to the Lord. He says, I'm gonna summarize it all for you, Pharisees. He says, love the Lord your God, and then love others. He summarizes everything into those two commandments. The greatest commandment of all, to love God, and then out of that love, to love others. And then this lawyer who's listening, he says, okay, well, what does that really mean? And, and so Jesus talks about loving others, and he connects it to loving your neighbor. And, and the lawyer asks this question, and who is my neighbor? And who is my neighbor? So Jesus gives the story of the good Samaritan, and he talks about how there was a priest and a Levite, and so there were pastors and deacons, in other words, who are walking on a, on a, in our modern narration, you could say uh, similar to that. They're walking on a road, they see a man who is beat up, and, uh, and they walk on the other side. And so, you know, we've, you've probably heard preachers preach that text before and say something to the effect of, you know, you're on your way to church, and, uh, and you see someone uh, who's in need for the things that you learn at church, but you don't stop because you're going to church, right? And, and so, the priest passes by, the Levite, the holiest of all, the holy men living in that day, pass by, and yet there's a Samaritan who walks on the road who in a Jewish context was only half Jewish, and so they felt like they were outside of the bounds of what it meant to be Jewish, and they were something less than human in some of their minds. So Jesus takes that kind of person and he raises him up and he says, a Samaritan who is good helps this man, uses his own money, his own time, resources, energy, all of those things, and, uh, and then at the, at the end, Jesus says, and who do you think was a neighbor? And of course, the answer is obvious. It wasn't the priest, it wasn't the Levite, it was the Samaritan. But really, the, the underlying tension in Luke chapter 10 is this, that the moment you begin to ask the question, who is my neighbor, is the moment you've lost the plot. Because what you're trying to do is you're trying to justify 
yourself to get out of being a neighbor to people, which means that you're trying to find ways that you do not love other people and that you do not love God because you want to define it yourself. The same spirit that was rooted in the lawyer's question is the same spirit of the individuals that Paul is combating and opposing here. Because the moment you begin to say, well, what shall we say? If grace is, is legitimate, then that means that I can just sin and sin and sin. And Paul's saying you've lost the plot because you've misunderstood what it means to accept the grace of God in Christ. And so this misunderstanding is what Paul is addressing here. You see, the person who sees grace as a, as a chance to take advantage of grace is the one who has yet to experience the radical, heart-transforming power of true grace that comes from Christ. You see, true grace doesn't just forgive sin, it mortifies it. It doesn't encourage lawlessness, it ge generates a love for God's Law. It's not an excuse to sin, but the very reason that we despise and turn from sin and have the ability to live a life of freedom is because of the true nature of grace that we find in Christ Jesus. So today, we want to make sure that we are coming face to face with true grace. And we wanna leave this place understanding what it means to, to understand the kind of grace that God is offering you as a free gift today. And so here's today's sermon in a sentence, it's this. Sin's reign ends where Christ's rule begins. By his grace, we're transformed within to embrace a life of freedom. Now contextually, contextually, let me uh, say one more thing before we move on. That this passage here in Romans six, you have to understand this, is primarily designed for those who have already experienced the grace of God. Paul's not writing this letter to people to try to convince them to experience the grace of God. In other words, those who are not saved. Paul is writing this letter to people in order to help them understand what it means that they have been saved. And so think about that as we walk our way through this because when we get to the very last verse, which was one of the more popular verses in modern day Christianity, we wanna understand where the emphasis is in that verse, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. We wanna understand the emphasis of that verse after we walk through Romans chapter six together. Um, and so we're not talking about salvation so much as we're talking about sanctification. There, those are two different things. One theologian defines sanctification like this, that it is the Holy Spirit's work of bringing us to be in practice with what we are already in principle, namely conformed to the image of Christ. And so what Paul's talking about here is living a life of freedom because you have already experienced the grace of God. And so we experience freedom because of God's grace. And so with this in mind, here are three different insights that Paul gives us in Romans chapter six that help us to embrace a life of sanctification that points us towards a life of freedom. And the first one is this, that you, that I, that we are dying in order to live. We are dying to live. Look with me at verses three through seven. Let me go ahead and read those. And, I, and as I read these verses, I wanna, I wanna emphasize some words that, that show up in every single verse. You're gonna pick it up. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead, through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in the newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was 
crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin for he who has died is freed from sin. Do you see the word death show up in just about every verse? And the verse that it doesn't show up, you have the word crucifixion, which by the way, also means death. And so you have this theme of death in every single verse. And really the concept of death is not really just death. You're gonna see that in these verses and also in the next chunk of verses is that the word death is associated with the idea of life. And so when God talks about death for the believer, it's not in a vacuum, it's not separated, it's not divorced from the idea of life. And so yes, we experience death, but we also experience that in relationship to life. So this is to say this, that when we're talking about death as a follower of Jesus, it's metaphorical, but it's also literal. But it's not just death, period. It's death in association with Christ's death. It's, it, in fact, look with me at verse three. It's, it's we, that we have been baptized into his death, into Jesus' death. So our death is in association with Christ. And that's an important thing. And so what Paul does is he unpacks what that means. And so, in other words, again, as those who have already died with Christ, Paul's talking to believers, let's unpack the nature of what that means, that we have died with Christ. The first thing is, again, it is Christ's death, which is, which is this. Jesus' death was not accidental, nor it was not an accident. In other words, Jesus did not get hit by a bus and die. He, he chose to go to the cross. Those are two very different kinds of deaths. And so Jesus' death on the cross is not an accident. Uh, Peter, one of those who had a lot of substantial time with Jesus, he actually gives us a verse that tells us about the nature of Jesus' death. I'm gonna put it on the screen for you. First Peter chapter 2, verse 24 says this. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. So whenever your death, and guess what? Everyone's going to die. But if you have experienced a spiritual death in relationship to Jesus, then you have a certain nature attributed to your life that, by the way, breeds you life. It gives you life. It heals your wounds. And so the first thing we want to understand about the nature of death here when it comes to God's grace is that, yes, we, yes, we experience death, but it's not just death, period. It's death in association to Christ. And so it gives us a once and for all nature to this death, which is this, that Jesus paid the penalty for your sin. There was a bill that demanded your life, that at the end of your physical life, when you breathed your life breath and that heart of yours gave its last beat, that you would take your final breath and you would die and that would be it. And you would have an eternal life separated from the holy God. But when grace comes upon you, what happens is that that's not the end. Yes, you have died in that moment, but there is a life that is associated. We'll talk more about that in just a minute. In other words, it doesn't work like going to the doctor today. You know, when you go to the doctor, they start doing all these things and you have no idea what they're doing. And then you get like 100 bills from all these different people who are apparently in the room and contributed something to your health. Well, guess what? When Jesus heals your wounds, it's this once and for all nature. There is no claim that's going to be made on your life seven days later, 14 days later, a year later. There are no credit collectors who are going to be calling for your life because when you die in association with Jesus, you gain eternal life. But there's also that he was buried in verse three. So we're baptized into his death and Jesus' death, he was physically buried. And if, if Jesus' death is your, is your, um, your payment, 
then Jesus's burial is your receipt. So you look back on that and you have the historical fact that this detailed description of Jesus's death, in fact, this is associated with a prophecy from Isaiah chapter 53, verse nine, which says that when the Messiah would die, he will be buried in a rich man's tomb. And we now know on this side of his death that this has to do with Joseph uh, who, uh, who owned the tomb in which Jesus was buried. And lastly, we see in verses four, five, six, and seven, that not only is our, is our baptism into Jesus's death associated with his once and for all death, with his historical detailed burial, but also with his life, also with his life. Look with there, there with me at verse, uh, verse four. It says, the newness of life. So you gain, by God's grace, a newness of your life. That Greek word there for new is interesting. It doesn't just mean uh, fresh, like going to the produce section and, and, and getting a, a fresh apple. That's not what the word new means. It means that something has experienced a different nature. It's been transformed into something entirely different. And it implies a, a qualitative newness, something that is not just new, but fundamentally different. Paul, writing to the church in Corinth, gives us this verse, 2 Corinthians 5, 17, to talk about this kind of transformation. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away and the new has come. That's the same word new there that he uses here. So all of this together, dying to live, means that whenever you experience God's grace, rather than trying to do anything and everything yourself, means that your life is now associated with Jesus' death, your life is now associated with Jesus' burial, and your life is now associated with the resurrected Christ, and this results in a newness in your life, which means that you are transformed spiritually into something entirely different. Do you understand that? You have been fundamentally transformed. It's like a caterpillar turning into a butterfly that went into that cocoon and came out something different. That is what God has done in your soul. And so it's not so much metaphorical as it is literal. That's something spiritually has changed. And so this idea of baptized, you are immersed in this and it results in this brand new nature. Now let me illustrate. Uh, some years ago, um, about five or six years ago, I had the, the opportunity, it was the first time I got to do this, I was invited and you, some of you know this story, I've, I've kind of hinted at it before, but let me tell you the rest of the story since that, uh, since that has happened. So about six years ago, I was invited to, uh, to preach at Southwestern's uh, chapel. And it was, you know, I was like, oh man, this is so cool. I was very excited to do it. And, uh, and so I was thinking about these students and I really wanted to give them a message. I'd, I'd been pastoring for about 15 years at that time. And I thought, you know, I wanna give them a message from the things that God has has taught me over the years of pastoring. And, uh, and so I was drawn to essentially my life verse, 2 Corinthians 4.12, where Paul says, we die so others can live. So it was a very similar message to this point in Romans 6. But it was really pastorally, uh, pastorally directed. And so I was sitting in, in my office and I was uh, thinking through this. And, and the context of, of 2 Corinthians 4 talks about a vessel uh, that is brittle uh, and, and in order for it to essentially be broken so that the, the light of the transformative gospel can be observed. And so I was sitting there doing that and I, thinking about that and I looked on my shelf and I had this pot, this, uh, this 4,000 year old jug uh, that I had bought um, in 2006 from Israel inside the walls of Jerusalem. 
And when I went there, this was with Criswell College, I really wanted one of these uh, old ancient artifacts. And so we went through the trip, I went to this shop, and, uh, and, I, and I saw this, uh, this shelf, and the guy was trying to sell me an inauthentic, uh, you know, broken piece of something that was obviously soldered together. And thankfully, my Hebrew professor was there, and he said, no, that, don't get that, get this. And so I got it, got the certificate, came home, and, uh, and, and as I was carrying that thing from Israel home, uh, I really didn't know where, where to put it. You know, I couldn't put it in my suitcase because it would have cracked. And so I had to carry the thing all the way home with me. And so I'm in the, the airport, I'm holding it in my lap. I mean, the, the rest of the students were joking that it was, had become my baby. I even probably gave it a name. And so I was engaged to Amanda at the time. And, uh, and so we hadn't seen each other in two weeks and we were to be married a, a, a month later. And, uh, and so we saw each other in the airport and it's like the slow music starts playing on the movies. We're running together and, uh, and we come together and we hug and I'm still holding on to that thing. And so I have her in this hand and I have the jug in this hand and someone snaps a picture and asks the question, which one is he holding tighter? You know? So all that happens, that was in 2006. The thing, I've, it's moved around with me from Tyler to from East Texas to West Texas to here. And to be a, a little honest with you, I loved it, but it, I just didn't know what to do with it anymore. But I still loved it, and I still treasured it, and it was, a, it was a fun story. So I thought, you know what I'm gonna do to illustrate this point? I'm gonna smash this thing. And, uh, and, and I had that thought, and to be honest with you, I really didn't think any more about it. I probably should have because of where this is going, but I didn't. And so I preached the sermon. I don't tell anybody what I'm doing. I have this box. Everyone is wondering what, what, what's in the box. At the end, I hold this up, and I have, actually have a picture. I pulled up this picture to show you. It's a little blurry, but that's the jug, and that was, that was me uh, preaching. And so at the end, I held it. Let's go to the next picture. And, uh, and then I held it over, um, over the, uh, the pulpit, and then I let go of it, and then the next picture shows what happened to it, obviously, is it, it's right there at the bottom. It smashed. And, uh, and so uh, Curtis was there, and he said, it smashed perfectly. I mean, it landed and it, the pieces went over and the ancient dust started kind of pillowing up, you know, and, and, uh, and I thought, wow, the, the illustration really landed. And I went, you know, uh, two weeks later, maybe a week, two, week or two later, I get this email. And uh, it's from someone from Southwestern, had no idea any of this was happening. Uh, but they, uh, there were some, um, some people there who oversee ancient artifacts who were very upset with me <laughs> Over, uh, over this experience. I can tell, someone's gonna tell, Amanda, make sure someone tells this story at my funeral one day, because it's one of those. And so, I, you know, someone's really upset, and, uh, and I think, oh man, I didn't even think about it from that perspective. And I really love art, I wasn't trying to be disrespectful. And, uh, and they were wanting to come out with a statement, you know, like banishing me and repudiating me. Not my first time, you know. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and so anyways, they, this sermon was actually banned from the, from the, the website for a while, until some new administration came in and so they brought it back, but you have to search for it. It's not like immediately there. I had to like go look. And so it's like in the secret back corners of their website. And, uh, and so it was a, a really interesting story. So anyways, I, uh, I, I, they thought I was lying about this thing, that I, one of those preacher stories, I suppose. So I, I put all the stuff back in the box. Now I really don't know what to do with this thing. So, um, you know, I said, I, I told the guy, I said, listen, I wasn't trying to be disrespectful I said, I'm happy to come and bring the pot up there. They were asking me to bring it up so they could look at it. So I take it to this, uh, this art of their, their department, and I'm not kidding you, they start licking the thing. And, and I was, one hand, I was impressed. On the other hand, I was disgusted because they were trying to understand how old it was. And I guess you can lick old dirt to find out 
how old it is. So uh, they said, and so they, you know, they go and they, they have their meeting and, uh, and, I, and so I'm just kind of waiting. I'm like, okay, so is it legit? Because I showed them the certificate. They said, oh yeah, it's legit, it's legit. I said, okay, so from David's time, right? 4,000 years, they said, no. They said, this thing comes uh, from Genesis 1 through 11. It's one of the oldest things on the planet. I was like, oh man, you know. I was like, wow, I really did love that thing, you know. And, uh, and so anyways, I donated the pot to them with a letter and they said, yeah, it'll be, it's fine. They said, we'll use it for our students to kind of piece back together and then we'll you know, show it off. And, uh, and I've thought a lot about that since, that since that time. And genuinely, I meant no disrespect and I, and I apologize for that. But here's, here's where I'm at with it as it relates to, to verses like 2 Corinthians 4.12 and Romans 6. I loved that thing. I really did. You can go into my office and I have, I have ancient um, oil lamps and different things like that. But that's why I dropped it that day, because I loved it. Because I wanted students who are about to jump into a life of ministry to understand that if they're going to survive this, not just in ministry, but in Christian ministry, just being a Christian in a world that is demanding and asking you to hold up a camera in front of your face and tell the world that the world revolves around you, I wanted them to understand it doesn't. If you're going to do true gospel Christian ministry, you have to be willing to let go of the things that you're holding on to, to die to yourself so that others can live. And so somewhere, I don't know where, because that department doesn't exist down the road anymore, it's somewhere, there's probably this reconstructed vessel with this apology letter. And, uh, and the idea is if you were to walk by that, my hope would be that someone would see this, this vessel that has, that has a story to tell. And the story is this, that it died and now it looks different. And now it's living in a different way. And it's a metaphor for the Christian life that we experience. Because listen, Jesus says, if you want to live, you must die. And so many of us, we misunderstand grace. And the, and the guys here who are asking Paul this question, they misunderstood grace because they wanted their cake and they wanted to eat it too. They wanted to illustrate death without breaking the pot. They wanted to hold on their, to their life and also get eternal life. And Paul says, it doesn't work that way. It does not work that way. We have to die in order so that we may live. And if we truly want to live like Christ, we must have to die to ourselves. But listen, when you do, you get the kind of life that Jesus lives. And guess what? Right now he's standing at the right hand of the Father and he's giving, giving us an example of this glorified life that we too can exist, which is a life that is impervious to any kind of sin or death. We can live forever. And so let me say this before we move on to the next couple of points. And I know that my time is up, I think, and we still have a couple of points, but they're not very long. But the point is not about dying, in order to live, like grace is something that we're trying to earn salvifically, the focus isn't on, listen, please don't miss this. The focus is not on your death. The focus is on Jesus's death. The focus is not on you, it's on Jesus. Your death only happens because Jesus already died. You've heard of guilt by association. We're talking about innocence by association. We're talking about the fact that our lives are so intertwined with Jesus that no one can tell the difference whenever they see the grace of God just kind of blossoming out. And so the secret to life is dying with Christ. And so with that, under, uh, that idea here and that understanding, how, how are you living? And what, what kind of things are you holding on to right now that God 
is asking you to let go of in order that you can showcase the grace that God has given you so that you're not abusing the grace but showcasing the grace. Here's the second point. We are raised to live to God, verses eight through 11. Look there with me. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we also shall live with him. I don't think the timer was on. I'm checking because I'm not, I, I don't wanna hold you guys too long, but I also wanna get, uh, make sure we get all this time in. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, verse nine, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. Now, let me pause right there. Because as much as Paul is saying death, 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 death in the previous verses, I want you to notice that he's saying life, 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 life in these verses. If we've died, we live. Knowing that Christ has died, we've been raised in verse nine. Verse 10, that the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. And so as much as death peppered the previous chunk of verses, life sprinkles this chunk of verses. And so we're talking about how when we die, we are raised to live a new life to God. And and so I want you to, to see with me in verses 10 and 11, there's a small preposition that Paul uses here, two letters, that has a powerful impact in your life. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, verse 10, but the life that he lives, he lives what? For God? No, he lives to God. Small but important. Verse 11, even so consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive for God? No, alive to God. We are alive for God, we live, do live for God, but that's not the point Paul's making here. Remember, He's talking to believers. And so he uses the preposition too. Why? Because he wants to help us to understand the difference between a transactional relationship and a personal relationship. Now, let me illustrate that. I have um, a relationship with my wife, Amanda, and I have a relationship with Luka Doncic, the Dallas Maverick. (laughs) One of those is personal. One of those is transactional. I'll let you guess which one is which. I wish that my relationship with Luka Doncic was personal. I wish I could call him on the phone and talk to him about his games and things like that, but it's transactional. I buy a a Maverick ticket, I go watch him, I expect him to score 40 points points for me when I go watch. You know, I, I, I try to trade for him in my NBA fantasy team and the guy won't give him to me. It's all transactional, right? There's a difference. And so one of them is, is you do this for me and I'll do this for you. He gets paid his money because people like me, we pay money to go watch him and buy his shoes and his, uh, and his jerseys and things like that. Now with Amanda, it's very personal. You know, I don't, I don't pay money in order and then expect her to do these things and, this, and it's the, it's the, works the other way as well. In other words, our relationship is based and birthed out of love for one another. And so we do things for one another because we love one another. And so it's a very different kind of relationship. This is what Paul means here when he's talking about a life to God. Because because we have this life with God and it is a personal relationship with him, now from that place we live for God. A lot of times we get it backwards. Again, he's trying to reel it back in and help them to understand what, uh, what true grace is. By the way, this is why I'm not that big of a Dallas Cow, I'm a very warm weather Dallas Cowboy fan because transactionally, I gave them a lot and I, and I wasn't getting a whole lot of the relationship anymore. And, and so if they start you know, getting back, then maybe I'll, uh, I'll enter back into that relationship. It doesn't work that way with God. And so a life with a living God that is personal in nature is what Paul's telling us here. We're, we don't have a personal relationship with a distant entity 
who's just out there watching from a distance. No, we, we talk to him, we, we, he, he speaks to us, he dwells within us in the Holy Spirit. And so this imitates the kind of life that Jesus lives in his resurrection. So that's the second point as Paul is trying to redefine grace. And here's the third and final point. We are alive now that we're raised. So we've died to live, we live, we are raised, and now we are alive to what? To live a free life. This is his whole point, to live a free life. And so he wants us to understand, because all of this is true, he wants us to understand, what, is, what does this mean for you? What's the so what? So if it's true that we have experienced God's grace, then what does that mean for our sin? It surely doesn't mean that we just abuse God's grace by just sinning and saying, well, thankfully I have God's grace. No, it means that we get to live a life of freedom. So look with me at verse 12. He says, therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body. So the first thing we do is we don't let sin reign, but again, we don't let sin reign because it isn't raining. It's not that we have to you know, go and say, well, every day I have to go and I have to reconquer the throne. No, Jesus is sitting on that throne. And so sin doesn't reign, so we don't let it reign. It, we don't want anyone to look at our life and say, how can that person be a Christian? Because it looks like sin is on their throne, the throne of their heart, the throne of their life. No, Jesus is. And then verse 13, we're called to present ourselves to God as instruments of righteousness. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. And so your life ought to, to be something that testifies of the grace of God in righteousness. In other words, in what is doing right. And then in verse 14, we see this, for sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. In other words, you are no longer a slave to sin. You are no longer a slave to sin. Back in... a 1863, Abraham Lincoln, he uh, declared the Emancipation Proclamation. And they didn't have social media back then. They didn't have um, cell phones. So they weren't able to get the word out. So literally people had to get on animals, horses, and go around and just spread the news. And as the news began to trickle out for all the slaves, there were a lot of people who had, who had lived in, in slavery here in the South who, uh, who had a hard time live, being released from that life one way or another. Some of them, they were uncertain about what lay, uh, what lay ahead, uh, lie ahead for them. Some of them were, were so used to the life that they, that they really didn't wanna leave it. Uh, some of them had the habit, the, some of the habits. In, in other words, slavery had been so deeply entrenched in their life, so deeply entrenched, that it was hard for some of them to escape that. And so some of them, even though they were free, the fact is, they continued to live like slaves. As we get here at the end of Romans 6, Paul's saying, listen, Jesus has declared the end of your slavery to sin, so why are you living any longer in it? Why are you living that way? You've been free from it. You don't have to live that way anymore. I'm reminded of John Newton, who, uh, who owned slaves and helped build the slave industry would get on boats and go over to Africa and, and steal people and put them on and, and he would come back over and then sell them and make and pocket the money. One day as he was out in, in the Atlantic Ocean, there was a storm and his life was spared. And he, and he began to realize that what he was doing was horrendous. 
So he turned over his life to Christ and ended up writing the words that we are so familiar with. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. You see, he understood grace. And so he wrote the song Amazing Grace because he understood that he was a wretch that had nothing to do with his salvation, but that God took away his blindness and caused him to see the world for what it truly is. And I'm wondering this morning, how many of us, how many of us are living like we are still enslaved to sin even though we've experienced the grace of God? Look with me at the very last verse as we close at verse 23. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. You know, we often look at that verse and we put the emphasis on the wages of sin. As believers, we think, oh, well, I don't wanna sin because I'll earn those wages. Well, yes, that's part of the verse, obviously, but the, the reason Paul's giving this verse is not to, to emphasize the wages of sin, it's to tell us that you don't have to worry about the wages of sin anymore. That that's not your life. You're not, you're not employed by sin earning those wages. The emphasis that Paul is giving as he gets to the end of Romans 6 is this, the gift of eternal life in Christ. So live like it. In other words, we have this eternal life already. It's something we possess, so we ought to start living like it now. So ask yourself this morning, follower of Jesus, if you're living like a slave or if you're living in freedom. Ask yourself, if God were to stand in front of you, how would he define your life? As someone who's enslaved to sin or someone who's living in freedom? Sin's reign ends where Christ's rule begins. By his grace, we're transformed within to embrace a life of freedom. If you're a follower of Jesus today, I just want you to understand the nature of grace. He's transformed your life. You're a new creation. It's not just that you're, you have a fresh day and that January 1st is around the corner and you have New Year's resolutions. No, it's that you're a brand new person and you are alive to God and because you're alive to God, you can live for God. So I wanna just encourage you for whatever it is that is really enslaving you right now, those secret sins, those public things, God sees those things and what he wants you to do is to understand that you have been freed from those so to stop living like a slave. If you're listening this morning and you've never given your life to Jesus and you wanna understand the powerful uh, transformative grace of of God in Christ, we encourage you to go to our website, tatesprings.com and click Know Jesus and we'll follow up with you about what it means to receive the grace of God. This altar is open for us as as we prepare to sing in just a minute. So I'm gonna ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes. And, uh, and we're gonna take some, some time this morning to sing a song in response to Romans 6, to God's word. Father in heaven, we, uh, we love you and we thank you for, for grace, amazing grace. And Lord, we know you have broken us like that pot. And that Lord, that's a good thing. Lord, we tend to love our lives. We wanna preserve them and get eternal lives. But Lord, grace comes in and tells us that that's impossible. So Lord, I wanna think this morning for just a minute about, about those of us here in this place, those of us tuning in who, who say we know Jesus, but maybe our lives are not evidencing that. And Lord, I wanna pray that you would um, help us to understand what Paul's saying here. 
that we don't need to overcome those things in order to earn your grace, but Lord, because of your grace, we can be overcomers. So Lord, I wanna pray that we would find hopefulness and joy in your forgiveness, that we would understand that shame was nailed to the cross so long ago. And Lord, I pray that your word would land on our hearts in a powerful way to help us to understand the story you want to tell in our life. Yes, we are broken, we are cracked, but that's part of the story, part of the process in order for the gospel to shine forth. So Lord, I pray that we would be followers of Jesus, disciples of Jesus that evidence that to our family members, to our moms, our dads, our brothers, our sisters, our neighbors, our coworkers, people in the elevator, everyone we run into, I pray that people would see that we are alive to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening. At Tate Springs, we believe God is telling a story of redemption that can only be found in Jesus Christ. If you'd like more information on how you can have that kind of a relationship, please visit tatesprings.com and let us know. We love you and want to help you discover your part in God's story.